I'm Jesse LeBlanc. I'm Kat Miller, and this is Vines and Wines. We created this podcast to share our favorite activity of discussing financial regulation while drinking wine. Each episode, we dive into the lessons learned from a recent disciplinary action. So grab a glass and let's dive in. Just a couple of quick disclaimers. Nothing we say here should be construed as legal advice. We're not lawyers. However, we do have collectively more than 30 years of experience in the industry. And while our opinions are our own, let us know if anything here resonates with you. We'd love to help you out. Lastly, we dive into cases to discuss the lessons learned and best practices. Nothing we say should be taken as being critical of the firm that is at the center of this case. So first of all, can I just lament for two seconds about the fact that I have, I'm not even kidding, like six windows open to do this podcast. And I don't understand why I have so many windows on my computer. Thank God I have two monitors because it's kind of ridiculous that I have so much stuff open just to talk to my best friend about the thing that we love the most. But I have so many windows open. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's funny you said that because once you hit record, I was like panically like trying to figure out what I needed to pull up because I have way too much stuff going on on my computer also. I was like, where's my notes? Where's the notice that we're going to review? Second most important question. And I, I think this is, this is the question everybody wants to have an answer to right now. Are you drinking gas station wine tonight? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I actually had time to run to the grocery store today. I do have my car back. So I've gone through quite a bit of issues with my vehicle in the last few months. And, and not necessarily issues with my vehicle, more issues with living in St. Louis City, where I've had a hit and run, which smashed in the entire side of my car. I'm surprised it wasn't totaled out and took it about two months to get back from the collision shop. And then within weeks later, I had somebody walk by and smash in my windows. So then I had to wait for that to be fixed. So luckily now I have a car. It's safely in the garage, locked away. I was able to run over to the grocery store in my neighborhood. Um, today I'm drinking a Malbec. I always like to switch it up. I picked this one because the little card said it was going to be a 92. So I thought, oh, well. And it was that means something. That, it's supposed right? to mean something, absolutely. Right? <laughs> but most importantly, it was in my price point, which is low. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am drinking a, it's a red blend. And the only reason I have this red blend, I like red blends, but the only reason I have this one in particular is because my husband and I celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary this last weekend at Mount Rainier. And the Airbnb we stayed at was kind enough to leave us a bottle of red blends from Portugal. I have no idea what else is in it. And I drank half of it at the Airbnb and I brought the other half home. So I'm finishing that today. So it's actually wait, wait. delicious. How do you drink just half a bottle of wine? I well, don't that wasn't the this. only thing I drank. It's just, I had half left to bring home. So that's what I've got and I'm finishing the bottle. That makes so much more sense to me. Well, cheers, my friends. Cheers. So I think today we want to talk a little bit about trade reporting. Which is always one of my favorite topics. Yes, most definitely. 
So this particular disciplinary action was brought against Morgan Stanley and was released in the FINRA disciplinary action brief for October 2022. In this action, between 2014 and 2019, Morgan Stanley reported nearly 10 million transactions in reg NMS and over-the-counter securities without the required short sale indicator. Additionally, the firm was fined for failing to establish and maintain a supervisory system, including written supervisory procedures during this time period. So the root cause of this issue stemmed from a programming failure that was uncovered by FINRA during a cycle exam. But the reason that this is important is that FINRA relies on accurate short sale trade report data from firms to support its oversight of reg show and other short sale obligations and to ensure that they're providing market participants with accurate information regarding short positions. The key rules that were reviewed in this enforcement and that we'll be discussing throughout this particular podcast are going to be FINRA rule 6182, which is regarding trade reporting of short sales for Reg NMS securities. And Reg NMS is an SEC regulation, NMS, which is an abbreviation for National Market Securities. The second rule cited and what we'll be reviewing is FINRA 6624. This is in regards to member firms needing to report whether or not a transaction is a short sell transaction for over-the-counter equity securities. And finally, a very common rule cited throughout most AWCs will be FINRA 3110. And this is for supervision, basically indicating members shall establish and maintain a system to supervise that is reasonably designed to achieve compliance. The first issue we want to discuss is relating to the programming failure that was uncovered during the firm's cycle exam by FINRA. So in 2017, the firm implemented a new trade reporting logic that resulted in the firm excluding the short sale indicator on trade reports for both NMS securities and Actually, stemming back further to 2014, they had a similar programming failure that was excluding the same trade reporting indicator for OTC equity securities. Yeah, so when you read it, it actually says the programming error in the logic caused the firm to exclude the short sell indicator on these short sell transactions. And just for those who don't know exactly what a short sell is, basically this seller does not own the security that's being sold. And according to Reg Show, Rule 200 indicates that like, that needs to be marked, in addition to the FINRA rules we talked about earlier, FINRA 6182 and FINRA 6624. So of the short sell indicators, you can either say that it's a short sell or a short sell exam. But when we go in, I actually hopped into the trade report specifications and had to figure out immediately and remember what was that indicator. And did uncover and remember that this is actually a separate indicator in itself. So there is what's called fixed messages. And for those who don't know, it stands for Financial Information Exchange Protocol, but it's the language that most financial systems use to talk to each other. So a particular field will have a value, and those values then represent something specific. So in this case, the fixed message would have been either an S and E, so S being short sell, E being short sell exempt, or blank meaning it's not at all. So again, AWCs are typically pretty vague. It doesn't give me all the details. Assuming this means that that particular fixed message was coming through blank on all of these trade reports for both the OTC and also the FINRA NYSE, which would be for the Reagan MS, 
trade reporting facilitation protocol. So I think both of those, for some reason, possibly that fixed message was blank. Now, how do you identify that, right? Right. I think that's the issue, right? So the case does point out that there were test trades that were reviewed when reporting was initiated. That's great. I kind of question what additional reviews would have occurred after the reporting was initiated to try to test for this. So in my mind, and I think, Kat, maybe where you're going is, is there a good way to kind of take the fixed messages that you're receiving from these particular trade reports, maybe build out a report to show when it was applied, and then reviewing that to determine maybe if there was something that was applied incorrectly or ensuring that the indicator was applied correctly. One thing this case does point out, the supervision that they created was insufficient to monitor for these particular FINRA rules. So if you're going to monitor for those FINRA rules, I think there is probably a good reason to go ahead and take a look at those fixed messages and what's being assigned to the trade reports to follow up on that and make sure things are being applied properly. Yeah, so I would definitely think there's a way that you could create a report if your firm doesn't already have it. Most likely, you're going to probably be working with an IT team to create these reports, and maybe even an IT team is going to be your systems coordinator who's actually creating these systems. But in the end, do they understand and know what each protocol message is, why it has value, why is this necessary? We might end up coming back to this initial topic a little bit in in the context of our secondary topic, but supervision was clearly an issue in this particular case. And I think what you're what you're bringing up really dovetails nicely into the whole idea of what sort of a structure do you have to ensure that any type of report or report cards, or anything that you're looking at to supervise this type of activity, how is that structured and who all is involved? So I think just from a best practice perspective, I'd be remiss if I didn't identify the idea of just compiling a trade reporting committee. And if you're looking at a trade reporting committee, who all is involved? And I think exactly what you're bringing up, Kat, is whoever is involved in reviewing those fixed messages probably needs to be involved in the committee. And I think it's probably unlikely in all cases that that person is a stakeholder in those discussions. You know, many firms have these style of committees, whether it's best execution or trade reporting or whatever, but how many people actually know how the systems are mapped and what those indicators mean? I do want to issue maybe a little caveat to this whole discussion, because I think that there are probably some reasons that would have made it a little bit more difficult to catch this. One of the things that's been a really high priority item for equities in the last few years is the consolidated audit trail reporting. During this time period, people were really focused on trying to transition to that, building out their infrastructure to support that. And again, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but it just seems like this is something that maybe could have gotten overstated as a result of all of the technological resources being dedicated towards building out consolidated on a trail. So that's one. The second thing I would want to call out is even with the report cards, even if you're even if you've got the best committee out there and you've got everybody around the table really supporting these report cards. I'm not sure you would have seen this with the way that the report cards are structured. Like this isn't a thing necessarily that's going to get called out with a red flag to say, hey, you forgot this indicator. This is something that was neglected to to be included. So I do want to cut them a little bit of slack. Another thing that is not super clear in the case that would be great to understand is how many trades do these 10 million represent out of the context of all of the short sale transactions that they do overall? Is this a big percentage or is this small? In my mind, I'm thinking if you're looking at a report, if you see a zero value in the cap, in the column for trade, it reports for short sales, that's a problem. But my guess is that it probably wasn't that clear 
You know, I think it's funny that you mentioned in all of these cases, we always want to give everybody a little slack because we've, we've been there. We've done it. We know how hard it is. When I read the AWC, I originally was under the assumption that it was off, right? So for me, I'd have to stop and think, well, what scenarios, why would it be on there sometimes and not on there other? It was one that we were like, well, would that FINRA Reagan MS trade through report would have caught it? And in the details, the short sell indicator is included, but also it's in the details, right? How many times are we just looking at the stats on the report card and you're not necessarily going through trade by trade line items? So if the case was that it was zero, how many people were drilling into it? Right. You know, the other piece I would want to call out, and again, I have to make some assumptions in this case because there's just not a ton in the AWC, but the case points out that there were only three supervisory reviews conducted over five years. I feel like I'm missing a little bit when that's stated as those are the only three pieces of oversight that were, were conducted over a period of five years. But the case points out that the supervisory structure that they created or that they had at the time was insufficient to monitor for this particular rule, right? So And I have to ask the question, who was ultimately conducting those reviews? Obviously, there is definitely a role to play for the first line of defense. The business is for sure responsible for supervising this and making sure that if a trade reporting indicator needs to be added, it gets added in the right way. But secondly, if your compliance support or compliance advisory area is not coming in and conducting independent tests, they probably should be. They're going to be much closer to the work than, say, your compliance testing area, which Again, just reading through this case was sort of the conclusion that I may have jumped to was that when they said three supervisory reviews in five years, was it just the compliance testing area that conducted those particular reviews? And if that's the case, I think that's a little concerning because the compliance testing area, they are great at what they do, but they are coming in in a lot of cases, and I don't want to speak for every firm, but in a lot of cases, they are coming in to test the processes that exist in compliance with the policies that are written and making sure that they are compliant with the rules. They're not necessarily going to lift the hood and look at all of the infrastructure and make sure that the plumbing works correctly. Like they're not going to do that. And I think the compliance advisory area or the compliance support for the business, they're going to be a lot closer to that and be able to come in and find these issues more specifically. This is a continuous theme that Kat and I are going to continue to bring up is the fact that it's not just on compliance to come in and test these procedures. They need to be working with the business. They need to be working with operations to ensure they're looking at the right things. As a compliance officer, and Kat and I, as we were talking through this case, I can tell you for sure, it wouldn't be my first thought to come in and look at this fixed messaging. But Kat and I working so well together, if I know Kat, I would go to her and say, well, what, how do we want to do this? How do we want to create a report? And the first thing she'd say is, well, let's go back and look at fixed messaging and create this report, right? So this is exactly why it makes sense to really partner closely with your business and your operations professionals to ensure that you have the best supervision you can, because it's not a one-person job. You need to kind of work together to create that in an efficient way. So just to summarize, the two major themes that were covered in this case had to do the programming failure that was uncovered during the cycle exam by FINRA, just making sure that when you implement new programming logic that it's thoroughly tested and that you are continuously testing it over time and not just leaving it as a one and done review at the time that the reporting is initiated. 
The second issue and probably the prevailing theme for this case really is the supervisory issues. And specifically, what does your supervisory structure look like? Again, best practices would dictate that you have a supervisory review committee that has a number of people that are all knowledgeable about the particular issue that you are trying to cover. You should include people that are in the business and compliance and operations, but also people who are knowledgeable about things like fixed protocol to make sure that you're covering all your bases. Also, for any reviews that you conduct after the fact, make sure that they're being conducted with all of the right parties involved. It should not just be the solely the responsibility of the compliance testing area to test all of your policies and procedures. There should be additional level of testing that goes in by other compliance professionals with the involvement of operations and the business side. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Lines and Wines is a part of Trade Lines, a consulting firm for broker dealers and investment advisors with trading, operations, and compliance. Though these episodes are intended to be casual and a fun take on discussing regulation, our consultants are serious when it comes to helping you out.